Good morning, everyone. Merry Christmas. I'm glad to see you here this morning. Thank you for joining us. I was reminded uh, this week that while Christmas is a time of celebration for many, for others, Christmas is a very difficult time. In particular, I thought of uh, a few of my friends who lost their spouses this year and are spending um, the first Christmas without them. Um, I think about those who are estranged from their families or who are confronted with broken relationships every time Christmas or the holidays come around. But as these uh, songs expressed this morning, Christmas is not just a time of celebration and a family, but it's, it's celebrating what God has done uh, in this world. That God sent Jesus here so we could sing words like, what a beautiful name it is. That we could express things like being able to come before God just as we are. So let's remember that this morning. That what we really celebrate through this time is God's movement in the world. How many of you watched Christmas movies at some point over the last week, just just show of hands, yeah? Uh, there are a lot of great Christmas movies that have made their mark on our culture, and so we're going to do a small Christmas movie pop quiz this morning. I am going to describe a movie to you, and you are going to guess what movie it is, but you have to wait until I'm done, okay? No like Mr. or Miss Marty Pants, I know what it is after the first sentence. Got it? Everybody agree to that? Okay, number one, a troubled elderly man goes to sleep the night before Christmas and has disturbing dreams which illustrate what a loser he is. He wakes up afraid of death and turns his whole life around by buying the largest turkey available. That's right, it is... There it is. Hey, it is a Christmas carol. I don't think I've ever seen that version, but um, there's the first one. Okay, number two. A man who has lived a good if unremarkable life gets drunk one night and has a conversation with an underachieving celestial being. Through their time together, he comes to understand that though his life was not what he thought it would be, it is exceptional through all the lives he has touched. A cash reward from the town confirms that everyone really does like him. It's a wonderful life. There we go, Jed. We're on it now. Uh, Number three, is this man Santa Claus or is he crazy? Let's go to court and see. Miracle on 34th Street. Good. Uh, A boy has a dream. He dreams the dream. He writes about the dream. His dream, everyone tells him, is a dangerous dream, but he will not give up on the dream even though he's been warned and the whole world is against him. Then he nearly shoots his eye out. I really like that poster, by the way. That's a great poster. All right, next. A man travels across the country to see his estranged family, only to find that his wife has been taken hostage by a terrorist who speaks German with an English accent. 
a terrorist who speaks German with an English accent. He goes on to fight the terrorist barefoot for some reason, saving the day and restoring his relationship with his wife. Die hard. Thank you. It is absolutely a Christmas movie. A boy who finds himself separated from his family thwarts the stupidest burglars in the world with an iron, paint cans, and feathers. He learns that family is the most important thing until the next year. There we go. An adopted man-child travels from the outer reaches to the big city to find his birth father. His birth father wants nothing to do with him, but the large weirdo is so full of joy that he becomes a part of his new family, falls in love, and saves Santa from the Central Park Police. Elf. Good. All right, this is the last one. You get extra bonus points if you get this one correct. A woman who has faced a great deal of turmoil in her life goes back home to open a shop of some kind. There she meets a mysterious, complicated man whom she finds herself inexplicably drawn to. He might have been a childhood sweetheart or a fireman or a childhood sweetheart who is now a fireman. They ice skate and drink hot chocolate. Her business is threatened by an evil corporation. A problem arises with the boyfriend, and they go their separate ways after a dramatic conversation. She starts playing the piano again, and maybe also the violin. He returns to profess his love with flowers or baked goods and a puppy. They kiss. Bingo to Janice. Any Hallmark Christmas movie. That's right. These are all stories, except for maybe all the Hallmark ones, uh, that are woven into our culture. And as silly or as strange as the stories may be, there is, there is kind of a common thread that runs through most of these stories. Um, there is the thread of, of, of hope or looking forward to something. Uh, almost always someone discovers what life or love or family is about. And there is always uh, a moment of truth somewhere in the movie, which uh, may mean letting go of past hurts or finding uh, one's place in the world, discovering love or having greater hope for the future. And in all of these stories, as they go along, uh, hearts are changed and lives become something different through the experience that they have. And we love these kinds of stories. Uh, whether it is, whether it deals with terrorists or it deals with a BB gun or whatever the main part of it is about, we, we love these stories because I think more than any stories that we tell uh, throughout the year, these stories hold a measure of hope and promise. And they also say that no matter who you are or what's going on in your life, there is hope for you to turn things around. Through the season of Advent, we have talked about how the coming of Jesus brought hope, joy, peace, and love to the world. And this morning, we are going to light what is called the Christ candle. We can do this here. Nope. There we go. It is the, the final uh, candle of Advent. 
And with the lighting of this candle, and today we again declare that Jesus has come to the world to do what all of these movies so poorly describe, in contrast to what God has done and what God did through the coming of Jesus. So this morning we want to take one more look at how this happened, but in order to do that, we need to talk about the world that Jesus was born into, because Jesus was born into a very specific setting. As many of you know, the people of God were under Roman rule, and while they were allowed to worship God, and they even had their own king of sorts, their sense of self-insecurity was not what it once was. They were sort of in a state of crisis. And no one could really agree in this state of crisis who God was to them. I mean, there were lots of ideas and philosophies that went around, but to many at the time that Jesus came to earth, God felt very distant from mankind. It had been generations since they were the mighty people of God who had won all of their battles. And even though they had returned home from exile, and, and even though you know, they had some sense of who they were, that sense was still colored by the fact that they were always under the rule of other people. To give them the benefit of the doubt, they adapted to their reality the best they could, but in the process of this adaptation, they had lost sight of who God really is. It's hard to believe, I know a little bit, but they, they really didn't understand God very well. So to some, effectively, Rome was God. Rome had to be honored and the peace had to be kept so that the Jewish people would continue to live with some sort of autonomy that they had. But to others, God was an exacting Lord, sort of like Santa. He knows when we are sleeping. He knows when we're awake. He knows if we are bad and good. God always knew what people wanted, and he knew how he wanted his people to behave. And within this model of following the law and doing everything right, there was very little breathing room with this version of God. You could follow the law, or you could be left behind. And this left many feeling disenfranchised. Those who were poor or sick or struggled with life were often treated as lesser by those who claim to know God. And when I look back on that kind of environment, I recognize for myself that I don't think I would have been considered one who could be close to God at that time. So the result was that for many, God was far away. He was untouchable. You didn't really, you didn't really know him except feeling like he was looking over your shoulder all the time. And, and on one hand, some considered him basically as a token to still be worshipped but under other things. And on the opposite end, uh, something to be feared. And he was not known in the way that you know someone you love or you are in a relationship with. In fact, the very idea of knowing God personally at that time was ridiculous. The thing was, though that God had always wanted to be close to his people. He just couldn't get them to be close to him. The book of Isaiah tells of King Ahaz, 
who found himself in a difficult situation. He had enemies all around him, and he did not know what to do. He was afraid, so he called Isaiah the prophet over to come help him and asked what was going on. Where is God? Is God with me? Is God not with me? And Isaiah gave him this answer from Isaiah 10, or 7, 10 through 13. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest steps or in the highest heights. So Ahaz says, I want to know if God is with me, and what does Isaiah tell him to do? To ask for a sign. Ask if God is with you. Ask him for a sign, and you will get it. But listen to how Ahaz responds in verse 12. I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Ahaz said that he could not possibly ask God for a sign. Because the very asking would be to put the, God, the Lord God to the test and to demand that he come into the situation where evidently he didn't feel like God wanted to be. And maybe he thought it was improper or disrespectful, but there he was being invited by the prophet of God to engage God and to draw near to God, and he said no. He said no. And I wonder about us sometimes if we are like this, that even though God invites us to engage him, maybe we say that we can't. It's not going to work. I've tried it before. I've asked God for this or reached out to God at this time, and he didn't answer me. And we can complain that God is so far away, that we we want him to be in our lives, and yet When we are invited to engage him, we can refuse. So Isaiah responds to this whole shenanigan, and he says, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of human beings? Will you try the patience of my God also? His response was one of exasperation. You want God to be close to you and to help you. You are surrounded by enemies. You're in battle, and you're asking where God is. And I'm telling you, he can be here if you just ask him to be here. You're annoying me, and you're annoying him. That's everybody in this story. God is calling you, but you won't come to him. In verse 14, God has a response to this small scenario we see that really tells us a bigger story. His response is that he will be the one to come close in spite of where his people are or the distance between he and them. In Isaiah 7, 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Not the one you asked for, because you didn't, but the one he decides to give to you. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. Amazingly enough, though God had done so much for his people, he chose to act in even a more definitive way. And understand that these words from Isaiah chapter 7 were spoken centuries, hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene. God makes this promise that one will come on behalf of God, and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. So fast forward to Matthew chapter 1. 
Several hundred years have passed. The people feel this distance from God. They're not calling out to him anymore. In verse 18, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife, but he had no union with her until she gave birth to his son, and he gave him the name Jesus. This is the, a critical moment in the story of the birth of Jesus that I think sometimes gets overlooked. Because there's so much happening in the story of the birth of Jesus, right? And there's so many attention-grabbing things. But in the beginning of the book of Matthew, Matthew tells what Joseph is thinking and what he's going through. Which is really nothing compared to what Mary is going through. But Joseph is trying to do the right thing. He doesn't want to embarrass Mary publicly. So he's going to try to quietly bow out of the whole experience because he simply can't believe that God created this baby within her. So God came and spoke to Joseph. And what did he tell him? He said, I, I, I really did do this, number one. Number two, you need to name him Jesus because he is going to forgive the world for their sins. And Matthew throws in this observation that he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. This is the moment when God declared that heaven will come to earth, that God will send his son to this place and his name will be Emmanuel, God with us. The moment of truth, the moment when the story pivots and becomes something else. God had promised that this would happen so long ago, and the time, he says to Joseph, is now. So I want you to understand something just very simple about what God is doing in Jesus. The purpose of Jesus is to bring God closer to us than he ever was before. Whatever distance there was between God and his people would be erased through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And, and no longer would God be considered a token to be put back in the corner out of the way while people served other masters. And no longer would God be considered a strict or unyielding Lord who is looking over your shoulder and waiting for you to fail? No longer will God be considered indifferent to you because you struggle with life. Instead, God will be here with you and you get to decide whether you will engage him or not. 
So the, the last question or idea I want us to focus on is, okay, we've talked about God has changed the world and, and that he's brought you know, hope and peace and love and joy and, and Jesus has changed everything forever, but what do we mean when we say that? I mean, even, even what the angel says, that he has come to forgive sins, that, that he is Emmanuel, God with us, we, we need a context to be able to put this into. And Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 18 that tells us what exactly God did when he sent Jesus here to earth. Starting in verse 9. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. This is a Christmas story. It's also an Easter story. Because it is wrapped up in everything that God has done through Jesus. And the Pharisee in this story is a classic example of someone who believes that they are the right kind of person. He has lived a good life by most people's standards, and he knows it. He goes above and beyond what the common person is called to do. He puts real effort into his faith, and because of this, he believes he is more righteous and more in tune with God than anyone else. He is the one who, at the start of the story, would have been considered the closest to God by everyone who was listening to Jesus that day. I have a problem with his prayer. But this prayer is not something that Jesus made up for the Pharisee character to say. This prayer is actually reflected in other parts of Jewish writing. This is from the Talmud. I give thanks to thee, O Lord my God, that thou hast set my portion with those who sit in the house of study... And thou hast not set my portion with those who sit in street corners. For I rise early, and they rise early, but I rise early for words of Torah, and they rise early for frivolous talk. I labor in the labor, but I labor, I labor and they labor, but I labor and receive a reward, and they labor and do not receive a reward. I run and they run, but I run to the life of the future world, and they run to the pit of destruction." This prayer was considered a normal prayer of thanksgiving, a model prayer that, that one would pray, and no one would see it as being self-righteous or, bro or boasting. The speaker is simply thanking God for, be able, for being able to study the Torah. And if you have a hard time with that prayer or the Pharisee prayer, listen to this one. One must utter three praises every day. Praise be the Lord that he did not make me a heathen, for all the heathen are as nothing before him. 
Praise be he that he did not make me a woman, for woman is not under obligation to fulfill the law. I didn't write it, I'm just reading it. <laughs> Praise be he that he did not make me an uneducated man, for the uneducated man is not cautious to avoid sins. Now, I want to ask you something about these three prayers. What do you notice about them? Number one, they are prayers of praise and thanksgiving to God. Yeah? But who is the main subject of the prayers? The prayer is the one who is the main subject of all of these prayers. Thank you, God, that you made me this way and not that way. Thank you, God, that you gave me this gift and didn't make me like that. So when the Pharisee was praying this prayer in the temple in the story that Jesus told, he was not only praying a model, a model prayer, he was acknowledging that he was on the inside because of what he had done, while this other man was on the outside based on what he was or on what he had or had not done. Thank you, God, that I am not like that person. And you know what every Jewish person listening to that story would have heard? That's right. Amen. Except for those who were in the back or who were on the edges and who heard in this prayer the words they had heard from God all their lives as told to them through those who supposedly knew him. You're not good enough. You never will be good enough. So I don't even know why you're here. You can't be here. This place before God is not for you. This other man who is a tax collector, the, the, the worst example of what you could be in their time, says just these few words. Have mercy on me, God, a sinner. The conclusion to this story is shocking. We don't appreciate it. We don't get this like we should. But Jesus said to, these group, to this group of people that only one of these two men went away justified before God, and it was not the one you thought it was. It is not the one who supposedly had done everything right. Instead, it was the one who saw clearly who he was in relation to God. It was the one who knew he was a sinner who had fallen woefully short of God's desire for his life. It was the one who confessed that he needed God's mercy. There were no blinders, no sugarcoating, no posturing. And only Jesus could tell this story because only Jesus knew that this ending was really even possible. That this one who shouldn't be there was the one who would be accepted. And the one who by all counts should be there was the one who left empty. Jesus told this parable knowing that he was the reason why this man this undeserving, sinful man could come before God because God was drawing near. The truest thing we can say about ourselves is that we are all sinners in need of God's mercy 
and that it is Jesus who makes us worthy. So the lesson is, you don't have to be something you're not. In fact, don't bother trying to pretend you're something you're not. Instead, why don't you come to God just like you are? God did that for us through Jesus. God did that for us through Jesus. He drew near to us. And he took away all the things that would keep us from him, our, our sin, the punishment for our sin. And he stepped right up to us, stood in front of us, and invited us to open ourselves up to him. That, that we don't have to pretend everything's okay. That we don't have to pretend like everything is all together. And the most wonderful thing, Jesus says, this God wants to be with you. All this time, you've been told that he wanted nothing to do with you. It's not true. God loves you. And he has come to you if you will just be before him. It's okay. You're invited. The party is for you. You're the one that he wants to be here. Church, this is how the world changed when God decided to live with us. Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus arrived and made it possible for us to approach God because God had come so far to approach us. And, and more than just to approach him, to go right up and confess to him that we are kind of messy and that there are so many things we don't have together. But through Jesus, that confession is not met with judgment or shame, but with love and grace. Jesus makes that possible. Praise God that he sent his son here to die for us. Praise God that he sent his son here to tell us these stories so that we would understand finally who God really is. Praise God that Jesus makes it possible for us to understand the love of God in a new and different way that we never would have known if Jesus had not come. Praise God that he saw fit to come to us because we never would have made it on our own. Praise God that he loves us and he says to us, you're not okay. And everything is not good. And you're never going to be good enough. But you don't have to be. I have come. Jesus is here. Salvation is yours. Amen. Amen.